Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The man team. Mega Bears fan. Are we streaming? That means we can go. Welcome to Polycast episode 416. I am your main or lead co-host, I guess, Canis Albinus, and I'm joined by the illustrious Makalua. I don't know, it's a little too early for me to be illustrious. <laughs> and the, uh, I, for, I forget what I was going to say for the me and team, but the fantastic, maybe? I offer to trade illustrious for iron. How about magnificent? <laughs> we'll make you magnificent, me and team. Uh, okay. I accept. I'm, Thanks for the iron. Yeah. I'm really glad that it's not super windy here today like it was a few days ago, because uh, I lost power six times that day. But, yeah, and then I remember, well, at least I'm not on top of Mount Washington, where it was 128 mile per hour winds and got the record low wind chill in the United States and took the crown away from Alaska as the coldest state in America. Isn't it something ridiculous? Like 98 below or something like that or the wind chill was 107 below on mount washington in new hampshire all right time to make the claim territory in antarctica uh, a state let's go (laughs) i mean i guess the u.s does have antarctic territory but i don't think that counts well it's not a state (laughs) we have to first make it a state state. there's some other places that would like to be a state before antarctica who probably deserve it so Nope, Antarctica. Move to the top of the queue. Uh, Let's go with the Upper Peninsula of Michigan first. And then after that, (laughs) we can go to Puerto Rico and uh, American Samoa and Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands. Although Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands would probably be a single state. Some of them actually don't want it, right? Whatever. Um, In the weeds here. Well, Antarctica, they want it. Or if they don't, we can like put five people there who say they do. And the then five people who run the research station want to be a state. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure we can find five. a couple people to send there to, to say know, that they want to be a, a state. <laughs> Speaking of people and leaders, we we have yeah. topics. Yeah, we do have topics. Leader Pass Pack 4, the Rulers of the Sahara, has been revealed. It's going to come out February 16th. So it's their Valentine's Day present to us. You know, Uh, five days after the recording of the show. (laughs) Well, you know, it's how it works. Uh, New alternate leaders, two for Egypt and one for Mali. I think it's Sundiata Keita or something like that for Mali. Something like that. I, I don't know how to pronounce those because when you listen to him in the first look i think he doesn't speak arabic so uh, i am not confident on the pronunciation of his name well i I do know how to say ramesses and cleopatra (laughs) yeah yeah it's ptolemaic cleopatra Uh, oh that one the p is silent so ptolemaic 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 whatever some there's some faucet company that starts like that too. Uh, 
Well, it makes sense because that would be, that's a Greek root word. So we finally have a Greek Cleopatra, which is appropriate. Yeah, we 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 we, we kind of got started into discussion of it before we got started uh, streaming about. It. Does she actually look different? I'm like, yeah, because she doesn't have that gigantic uh, pharaoh collar type thing on her anymore. Yeah, and she's yeah, and she's got more. Yeah, she really is more Greek styled here than Egyptian styled. And as usual, we don't really know what they're gonna get. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's like it's like it's it's just five days out. We still don't know who, who they're gonna be like. It's like, uh, thanks. And there was a first look for Keita, Keita, Keita. I'm gonna call him Keita because that's what I know those vowels to make. Uh, they made a first look, and it was him doing some animations and a quote, and that was it. And. I remember yep. back in the days when we used to get first looks that actually gave us, you know, information about the leaders we were getting. But I guess the well, the press team coming the second look now. The press team is all busy doing their um, stuff for Midnight Suns, I guess. Yeah, with Cleopatra, this Cleopatra, I wonder if it's going to go more towards learning and things like that. She was it, actually very well educated. Yeah. That does. It doesn't come across in a lot of things that feature Cleopatra as a character, but... Yeah, Cleopatra is woefully misrepresented a lot of times. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, because we've had Ramses before, and I don't remember what the difference was in other games between him and Cleopatra. Well, in Civil War, it was their traits. Yeah, but what were the I believe she was spiritual creative, and he was industrious spiritual. Okay, so one or both of them may have a religious bias they didn't have previously. That's possible. Yeah. I don't think so because uh, ancient Egyptian religion is not well represented in Civ, so it would be weird to make them like religious players because I don't think there's an option to pick ancient Egyptian religion in the religion picker when you found one. Hmm, now that you mention it, that's odd. I think they could have thrown something like that in there. Well, they added one of the uh, icons you can pick or whatever. I'm sure you can choose an Egyptian god as one of the names you pick for one of the the astrological symbols they have up there. Yeah. I don't think there's a sun one, though. And there's definitely not a pharaoh one. I'm just waiting for them to add the paradox logo as one of the symbols for your religion. Why would they do that? <laughs> because it would be really entertaining. <laughs> this is Praxis, though. I know. <laughs> This Firaxis already puts their symbol in places. They could have put it in there, I guess, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, they should definitely put their own symbol in, but if they put the Paradox logo, that would just be absolute trolling. <laughs> Very true. I wonder if the, the Leader Scavenger Hunt people have been finding the uh, Firaxis swirl on all these new leaders. I haven't oh, yeah. seen a thread about that. Looking at the pictures, uh, it looks like it might be blocked by the text. Great. Yeah. Did the Egyptian pharaohs ball, uh, shave their heads? Is that why Ramses is bald? I don't know. I don't think we actually know because they could have done that in the burial prep and we never know if they had hair in life or not. And they just It's easier to draw them with their special crowns in the different depictions instead of trying to put hair, you know? Oh, of course. I type, I type in pharaoh's hair and I get um, Yugi's hair from, from J- Japan. <laughs> I mean, yeah, technically, that is a pharaoh with hair, but... And I guess it's popular enough that that would be high in the search results. It makes sense that you'd get that, but it's funny. Everyone's favorite character is the nameless pharaoh, so... I know that uh, 
in ancient Rome, hair was cut short because of lice. So maybe it was similar in Egypt. Okay, Egyptian hairstyles, ancient Egypt. Children were expected to shave off their head other than an S-shaped lock. Men had their hair completely cut off or shaved in most cases. Women's hairstyles kept short hair, but this faded and long curly plaited hair became more popular. The poor didn't have any money to pay for expensive or good-looking ornament for their hair, so they would, um, they would decorate their hair with fish, uh, am- amulets of fish, hair rings, and clasps. Okay, so since the pharaoh was a man, we can ass- uh, was almost always, or at least as far as we know, always a man, they uh, were bald. Hmm. But they had elaborate long wigs, apparently. Anyway, back to Siv. <laughs> Ancient hair brought to you by... Yeah, I just. Yeah, I wish they would give us more information, but uh, hey. By the time you hear this, you'll probably know because you'll be playing them. Yep. Well, we'll find out sooner or later. So I guess moving on, then we have uh, a fairly lengthy article it's by uh, the Digital Antiquarian about sequels and strategy gaming. And this is part one. My gosh. Um, I read through some of this, but uh, a lot of it's just the history of um, how sequels got started and such, and in Civ in particular. I so don't know if there's something you wanted to uh, emphasize here. I have my own uh, opinions on <laughs> on the sequel stuff, but... The way that this article is structured is trying to make a point about what, how there are different kinds of sequels in gaming, specifically that Civilization is a mechanics-based sequel rather than a story-based sequel. Yeah, well, by necessity, though. And that's going to be true in a lot of games, unless there's like a contiguous story that was told like... Uh, from like from a book or something adapted into a game, or it's that kind of structure where a character actually goes through progression, has development or whatnot, and then you do a sequel. Well, it would be pretty off-putting, as we've observed numerous times throughout, uh, well, not just gaming but media in general, to have that character's growth slash whatever uh, destroyed in the sequel for whatever reason. Uh, and, and so you'd actually want to see that those characters progress or at least uh, be where they were uh, when you left off. Uh, but there's nothing like that in a Civ game because you're taking nations uh, from the start to a finish in a playthrough and there's no canonical ending, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, it has to be mechanics-based sequels. And that would be true for uh, most stuff. Like if you have a roguelike with random characters and you want to do a sequel, it's going to be the same thing. You're, you're, it has to be mechanics-based. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, and so all the RPGs are a story-based one because you're either continuing that story or the story of other characters in the same universe. You yeah. Know. I mean, or you could go the Final Fantasy route and just, like, there's no reference to the previous uh, characters whatsoever. All your characters no. are new. Uh, and there's that's some, also... Yeah, there's little, there's little elements of things that are familiar from game to game, but the settings are very wildly and the characters in the story do. Yeah, but I would argue that those are therefore much closer to mechanics-based sequels than uh, story-based because uh, you're not continuing the story. It's not like you go from Final Fantasy VII to eight, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> this is the world that happened as a result of in the previous game, yeah. or like, you know, you don't have cloud in the <clears throat> game at all, or whatever. <laughs> and the closest you'd get to a story continuation in Civ is if you won 
as the Alpha Centauri thing, and then you went and played some other colonization type of game where you were colonizing in space. Yeah. Sorry. Sort of continuing your story, but you can't really properly continue the story. The great Without mistake was not extended. doing World Conquest. <laughs> now you have competitors there, too. Unfortunate. I uh, found it amusing that the author thought that Civ 1 was a better game. I'm just like, really? Hmm. Yeah, I don't How know. does that work? I like how some of the comments immediately go to like uh, being gamey versus uh, doing like making your own story up or whatever. Well, waste no time, I swear. Historical games are always about role play or mechanics, and you fall on one side or the other. We know which side you fall on. Yep. So I'm calling you out, random internet people. I see Bull. both sides, but I also don't care. So it's like, <laughs> you know, I uh, I like role playing. But at the same time, I'm not going to role play for the sake of losing. So, well, that's where I actually get into some points of contention, though. It's because it's not just that other people are enjoying the game differently; they are advocating for changes that sometimes get implemented into the game that reduce agency uh, for players who are actually interacting with the mechanics, even as they themselves don't interact with the mechanics well, don't understand that side of the game too well. And then they, nevertheless, because uh, e- even as they're quote-unquote role-playing, they still get upset when they lose. Like, it's, it's still generates a story, right? But it's not the story they wanted. Uh, so now they want the mechanics to conform to whatever outcome they're picturing in their head, which is going to be different for different people, necessarily. Uh, you know, everyone's making their own story, ultimately. And th- that's not how you create good mechanics. It's how you, not how you make a functional game. And yes, we, I've actually observed these argumentative effects get implemented into a game. Uh, I'll just use E4 as an example and make the game worse as a consequence of doing so. And it's annoying. So there are some harmful effects, but only if the devs listen, I guess. Yeah, which I guess is more common nowadays than it was back then. Oh, yeah. There's there's no time for the feedback to go back to the devs to like make the game differently through patches that way. You couldn't even do patches that way. But yeah, this is an interesting read if you have not read it. Um, well, might be the most obvious thing I've ever said. <laughs> um, it also depends how no, much no, you're no, into no. The, the history of the these things being developed. Because they do go into a fair amount of detail here. Yeah, it talks about how Brian Reynolds wanted the cheat menu because the cheat menu was fun. <laughs> well, it is fun to have the cheat codes available that after you've beaten the game at some point and you can just go through. And sometimes in modern games it helps to have the cheat menus available because sometimes the game glitches in weird ways they couldn't have predicted and that way you can get back on track with your actual game yes what would we do without the ability to toggle clipping on and off in a bethesda game for example yeah Oops, or I'm like, stuck like, in the scenery again playing modded stuff and uh some things don't go the way anybody envisioned <laughs> it's nice yeah. to have the console for that <laughs> especially if it's your only means of continuing the game without it crashing for example then it's really really nice to have the console to, to make that the uh check that causes the crash isn't done <laughs> because the stuff isn't there or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's nice to have workarounds like that. I do appreciate the occasional game now and then that I see that actually has unstuck in the main menu. Like, thank you, because you, you knew your scenery was going to be glitchy. Well, that's a Bethesda game. Well, it happens in other games. Oh, shoot. I got to figure out what the next topic is. Modern Forts! So, there's a thread, um, is it actually a thread, or is it on Reddit? No, it's on Reddit, because... Uh, it looks like a Civ thread to me. At least put oh, a link. Oh, that's the wrong one. I have it labeled wrong. Okay. 
in my head. So the question that uh, Lone Cat Neko Frady, okay, um, says asks is is Kenmen Fortress of Taiwan the perfect example of a modern fortress? And overall, Louts about how layouts layouts. Yeah, okay, so they've got a letter. How does it look like? Also, how did it evolve from the old medieval star fort? And also return to medieval castle made entirely with ferrocrete. I guess somebody is—is is ferrocrete actually a thing, or is it a sci-fi thing? Isn't that just like uh, concrete with rebar? Or I don't think I, it's I'm not con- familiar with the term, but I've never—if like, I heard that, that hearing that term for the first time, that's what it makes me think of—is concrete reinforced with rebar, uh, <laughs> which is probably not uh, technically wrong. There's got to be some iron in the rebar. Well, it's it's, uh, it's not pure iron, but there's some. It's a word I often hear in um, uh, contexts, including the word plasteel. So I, I always assume that that is a science fiction type word, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I mean, you could also put like plastics into crap. And then it's like, it's not what the game means, but it, it, it's sort of you can kind of see where they're coming from and making the term, so to speak. Yeah. Are we still talking like, about no, the word? There's, there's no like, there's no like RimWorld plasteel, but you can like mix you know, plastic and steel in your design of materials. Yeah. Anyway, back to the actual fort. There's a picture here of a fort. Um, it is painted with what looks like old style camouflage, and it's like it looks like more like a pill bunk, a pillbox than like a giant fort. And the conversation basically goes along the line that. With rifled artillery, star forts are useless because they can just be blown up. So modern forts tend to be places that are largely underground or hidden in piles of rubble or um, mostly designed for the protection against over uh, aerial weapons rather than artillery, which means they're mostly underground. Uh, yeah, examples... Actually, the first thing that came to mind when I read modern fort is the trench. Well, yeah, think uh, they're talking about think underground, uh, underground um, fortress would be something like NORAD in Colorado Springs or. Oh, Cheyenne Mountain thing. Yeah. uh, Or like that, that um, Azov steel plant that kind of got completely surrounded by the Russians earlier last year uh, in uh, Mariupol. Is that what it was called? But the idea that. uh, that kind of fortification is a trench is also mentioned. Uh, I looked it up on Wiki, by the way. Uh, apparently, ferro-cement is, is w- exactly what I thought it was. It's just like you, you put some you put metal objects like rebar into the cement as you're pouring it so that it's stronger than it would ordinarily would be. Like, there's no, like, sci-fi element here. This is just commonly done stuff. So there you go. <laughs> Sorry to derail that, but uh, that was interesting. It's okay. But, yeah, uh f- entrenchments and such can be considered modern forts but i think the fact that we even have forts in the modern era might or like on the civ map might be an anachronism can you still build fortresses later in the game with military engineers i think so yeah i say yeah i think pretty sure like from a gameplay point of view it does definitely have a reason to exist well, it lets you do it, but it's also not as good as it used to be in earlier eras because, like, you have planes that can hit the target, and yeah. you have longer-ranged artillery 
than was available in previous eras, up to four with the promotion and the the flight support. So like a lot more things can hit the target in a fortress in the late game than the early game, which is not. I mean, it's it's crude, but it's a pretty good approximation of why they're less effective <laughs> in modern times. Is that things can more effectively hit you even if you're in the fort. So I yeah, yeah I think you it's might fine. Can, you might can slow down the advancing army. But they can also, in turn, send drones or airstrikes or whatever right over your fortress. And then, oh, look, you don't have one anymore. Yeah, or just kill the unit inside regardless uh, yeah. pretty easily. I don't know. Like There are things that uh, militaries do to make it harder to pick them off uh, if they're staying in a spot. But it's not like it, it's not the same amount of protection as a medieval castle was in the medieval era. It's kind of hard to have that level of protection in today's world unless you're literally underground in an anti-nuclear bunker or something. Well, even then, it's probably not as safe, relatively speaking. That's why they came up with bunker busters. I mean, you're probably not coming out of it alive if if a nuke does go off, but... I mean, you could probably just damage any potential entry point sufficiently that it would be difficult to leave. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Being buried alive is a very primal fear. But you have plenty of time to think about it because those bunkers that's have why plenty it's of resources. So, that's why it's so primal. <laughs> oh, diplomacy change it, yes. Uh, where's the which one is the link for the, oh there it is credit thread what would be the diplomatic changes and mechanics they would like to see in the next Civ game so a book, like example better call to arms mechanics you know if I would join an allies defensive war it shouldn't be the equivalent to me declaring war on the attacking civilization and all its allies hmm. I think the thing he was talking about was if you have a defensive pact and an, an, an alliance of AI of enemies are attacking your defensive pact partner you only declare war on the one who declared war on him directly first so once you're already at war i think uh the other civs don't get the same protection you don't get the same this was a defensive war modifiers with the rest of the world if multiple people are attacking you you have to declare on them individually oh so it's okay so it's not like it's not like how the world how it would really work where Oh, you have a defensive pact with this country, and then an alliance declares a war on them, and then you are automatically at war with the alliance. No, you're only at war. You're only at war with the attacker. Yeah, that's that's jank. Yeah. Uh, some people want them to draw inspiration from beyond the sword because they want capitulation, vassalage. Oh, Phil would be great with that. <laughs> Granting independence to overseas territories. Well, now do you mean diplomatical or war vassal? Because those were very different in terms of how I <coughs> uh, experienced them in Civ Four. Mm. They were specific on that one. Yeah, I mean, you you can make vassals a functional mechanic, or you can make it awful. So uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to the turn of vassals. I'll just put it that way. But I'm also I, I would have some caution. Yeah, further down, someone wants the like to see would like to see diplomatic favor not be a currency like gold thing, which I think can be too easily abused, and for it said to be as a scale between different nations that you know, like if you've been trading and stuff for a long time, it slowly built up the favor, and you're like, I mean, we have that in, in terms of whether they decide whether they're friendly or not friendly with us, but 
I guess they want to actually see a scale of how their relations are right now. You know, like you start at neutral and depending on your actions, it goes up into get along better territory. And the AI, AI can still also lie to you and say, oh, we love you. We absolutely do. And then turn around and stab you in the face. Make Dido yeah. deceptive. Sorry. Although it's an old joke from Civ like, Five. Ultimately, players would be able to figure it out. And like Civ Four just straight up gave you a numerical value that you could work with. So there's that as well. Yeah. Like some, and they'd also like some uh, better ways to do demands and things. You know, they added, they added a couple of other things like stop attacking that city state, take your envoys elsewhere. That would be great. Of course, we always have to move your troops off my border since they ask that us that all the time. Why can't we ask the reverse? And also the timeline on the moving your troops. It's like, yeah, sometimes you can't move them off the next turn. And then they are like, oh, my God, you didn't move it two turns later. It's like, uh, have you seen the terrain around your, your borders? I'm not now, the easy. I can't this, move your mountains. After seeing this third, I did actually respond in it. And I just said, I, I want whatever behaviors uh, by AI to align to the incentives of the game. Uh, so that they're not like throwing just because they like you, for example, and that uh, you can make incentives align. I don't think that's impossible, but it will result in a different game than we have now. So yeah, like it's kind of a pipe dream. And we've talked about it before, especially with Jason around. But uh, I would like to see that built into diplomacy so that there's in more incentive uh, work together. Or barring that, have the transactions make sense in the context of... Uh, like you're you're trading with this person so that you both have a an advantage that the remaining incentives don't get as a result of the trade. So that you're you're increasing your odds and the odds of one other opponent at the expense of everybody else's odds uh, in principle. Yeah, even if you were at max friendliness with a country, that doesn't mean you should they should let us walk all over them in a deal. But that does imply things like the religious victory condition would be close to impossible without fighting, and a lot of people wouldn't be okay with that. So yeah, you would have to rework a lot of mechanics in the game. In addition to reworking how diplomacy works so that they're aligned to each other. And I don't think you could do it by just changing the mechanics or just changing the diplomacy. Uh, that said, we're talking about uh, what will almost certainly be uh, like stuff for a new Civ game. Like Civ 6 is pretty late in its development cycle. So total reworks of these systems is par for the course uh, to some degree. I'm not holding my breath, but I, that is what I would like to see when it comes to Diplo. I think uh, we can all agree that the stuff that was added in Beyond Earth Rising Tide was pretty good. Um, maybe tweak that a little bit, but the idea of having diplomacy not based entirely on one factor of a relationship helps. Oh, the the, the respect thing versus the fear thing? Yeah. Kind of a, like, yeah. A, like, we respect you as... Your, we respect your decisions, but we also have respect for your military... So those two things have to balance together to make something that works. That way it's not like, oh, you have a huge military and we're afraid of you, even though we're allies. Like happened in Civ Five sometimes. <laughs> Basically just add a bunch of the stuff from other Civ games that we had. Let us trade maps. Oh God, yes, please. <laughs> Let us trade only territory maps. Let us trade... All but our territory maps. You know, let us have some granularity in what we show. You know, Civ 3, let us do that. You don't need to see where all my cities are, but I can tell you whether there's here be dragons on the other side of me. Yeah. Also, can you let us trade contact with other civs? Oh, yeah. That was always a good one. That was something that I liked in Civ 3, but I can't see since Civ 3. So 
why why are countries unable to facilitate the greeting of two nations within themselves i mean i mean how many times have war parties come together in paris to settle a war how many treaties of paris are there i think there's more than 20 that i know of plus you would just have some awareness of another civilization based on your interactions with one uh, if they're extensive interactions and that is somewhat abstracted by trading with them so it makes sense yeah and you know that it would be something for the ai they could ask you hey i've heard of this civ can you tell me where they are (laughs) or maybe maybe just give us contact because maybe you don't want them to know where they are but you'd like to talk to them yeah I've heard rumors through the trade routes of this other civilization. Do you know I could contact him for their goods? Maybe uh, trade embargo stuff. How about give us a robust system for creating formal multi-part alliances? You know, let us have the analog of like NATO or something like that in a Civ game. Because you can't tell me that that's not a relevant thing in today's world now. Maybe, but how would that play with victory conditions? Because well, remember, today's world does not have victory conditions the same way Civ has them. I think we could argue it does, but... Uh, well, they're not the same as Civ. They're, no, they're not, thankfully. Thankfully, they're not. But, I don't know, I think if you make a permanent... You should have permanent alliance-type things. Like, I would, I'm pretty sure that NATO is a permanent alliance. I don't think so. Not in the terms that Civ 4 used it, but I can't imagine... Well, that's a whole other topic, but... If we had, if we returned permanent alliances, maybe make permanent alliances available between more than just two people. So I'm pretty sure the HRE still had a longer run than NATO. Yes, it did, but also NATO is not uh, a federated empire, and the HRE is not an alliance. So <laughs> I'm just saying you're you're betting against history. I know we're a bit off topic, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> There was a fun example somebody gave in the thread about Peter apparently got mad because their holy city converted. They're like, yeah, but that's because you sent your debater into my apostle and whoops, your city converted. That's not my fault. But no, you're going to declare a religious emergency and a war on me because of something you did. Although, you know, in real life, that could probably happen. Yes, it could. So it's all bait. You're using the mechanics to your advantage because the religious emergency. Oh, yeah. Then you wouldn't have the. Uh... The great Cass's belly. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have the grievance. You wouldn't have the grievances against you because they declared war on you instead of the other way around. Yeah. Huh. I wish the emergency <laughs> mechanic was a little bit more fleshed out, but I don't know <laughs> I how do you like do when it. I trigger one because it makes the loyalty in the target city much stronger. Yeah, that's. <laughs> it's like whenever there's an emergency, when you're ever, whenever we're playing a multiplayer game in co-op, which uh, happens less regularly now than it did before for me, at least, but. You can just, as the human players, even if you're in co-op, always vote for the emergency because the player, the losing players, don't actually lose anything, and the winner gets extra stuff if it if they win the thing. And most of the AI won't join it because they're too busy being lazy butts. So most of the time, you're like, oh well, if you can forego trade routes to another player and just not fight each other. That's a bonus for the trigger of the event, and nobody else loses anything, which is just a net positive for defeating the AI. Yeah, in the co-op game, it's always like, do you want the emergency or not, so you can take advantage of it. (laughs) Nobody's really that concerned about the AI actually coming over and fulfilling the emergency. It's like, oh, one of the AIs is fighting me. That's okay, I was fighting them anyway. 
or getting ready to. Yeah. And then another thing you can do if you're like having a faux war with one of your allies is uh, let's just have gladiatorial games where we put our units right next to each other and just fight back and forth and let them heal up and fight back and forth and farm experience. Takes too long, but it is an option. Well, you have to be at war for 25 turns in an emergency, so. Yeah, but I want to be using my units to like gain tangible benefit beyond just XP. Sometimes you... Sometimes the situation doesn't allow that in Civ. Yeah, or you're like done, so you might as well do something on your turns, I yeah. guess. Well, yeah. there are also situations where, okay, I'm not going to attack Shaka in the medieval era, because that would be stupid. Could win. Well, yes, you could win, but it would be much more expensive than it needed to be. Mm. But back to diplomacy. Does anybody else have any other ideas? Thoughts? Opinions? Desires? You know what? We need our coalitions. Um... <laughs> I would kind of be okay with that if it was done properly, but because it's a game, it probably wouldn't be. Oh, you meant like good thoughts and opinions and well, stuff I actually believe. Okay, well. <laughs> one could argue that the emergency that causes everybody to declare war on you to fix the fact that you've captured too many capitals is a coalition situation, but yeah. the, the AI just doesn't react to it well. Maybe there should be a little bit more emphasis on joining emergencies like that, even if you're not super hateful toward that player. Or if it's taking place next to your borders, you have a, a, an interest in it, even if you didn't really want to. Yeah. Even if you're allied to the superpower, you have an interest in the superpower not getting more powerful than you. Yeah, or like winning the game outright before you can do anything. Yeah, abusing their authority one way or the other. And, you know, maybe we need a diplomatic reputation thing. Somebody suggested something like that further back up in the thread that it was like, if you've been dealing with this Civ for a while and they keep breaking their promises, then you're going to make it more costly for them just as a baseline to even try and have a peaceful solution because we know you're not going to do it. Well, there's already sort of something like that because if, yeah. if you break your expansion promise, for instance, mm -hmm. it will come up and say they forgot your thing. They forgot your yeah. offense. Because this game does take place on a much longer scale than some of the other games that have diplomatic reputation style stuff. but Yeah, it, it didn't seem like that person, I think, wanted it to work both ways. That they would actually make the player have to agree to a harsher deal if they kept repeatedly breaking promises. So, well, so I, it wasn't one-sided in that sense. I would like the AI to not make stupid deals with the player that the player can immediately break. Like, maybe the AI should be... Maybe just a little bit smarter. Oh, look, that's that again. Came up yep. yet again. All right, break out the machine learning. Let's go. <laughs> we just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about the right response. That's about the right response to what I said. I mean, <laughs> I'm excusing the whole problem that we're calling this an AI when it's not really an AI, it's a behavior script. But I mean,. That's the AI has been shorthand for that for most of our lifetimes. And it's I, it's not going to change. I, I think it needs to change because we're getting into the realm of okay, now there's machine learning uh, models that are being called AI and people are at treating them like they're actually thinking when they're spewing out their randomly generated or their specifically generated text. And the, the average person is going to be like, okay, so there's an AI that does all my work for me and like no that's it's not an ai it's not aware of itself 
it's not thinking when it's doing nobody, this. Nobody really, at least in up until now, when you hear AI in the context of games, people don't think, oh, this is this is an intelligent being making decisions like a human would make them. I mean, some people act that way in the moment. Uh, they yeah. get angry with like the leader head or whatever. But I don't think too many people really believe that this is acting like a person and it isn't just a computer script that is uh, responding to what's happening in the game. Well, I'm not talking about um, the gaming side. I'm talking about, you know, chat GPT is now a thing that the public okay. is aware of. And people are going to start calling that an AI when it is very much not an AI. Well, it depends on your definition of AI. Remember, if you're using the definition of AI as in like Matsuzuma in Civ 4, if that's an AI, I don't think it's unreasonable to put the chat beat GPT in the same bin as Matsuzuma from Civ 4. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. We shouldn't call so, it like we shouldn't call well, it that. Or AI could just mean what it has meant up until now. And if we actually design an like a self-aware slash thinking machine, we can come up with another term for that because uh, we don't have too many of those yet, to, well, to put it mildly. At this point, the various other says when you're playing the game are basically a set of algorithms that have a face and a character to them that you can get mad at. Pretty much, it's, yeah. When I look, humans, we like to anthro anth anthropomorphize. Anth we like to think it, treat everything as human. Anthropomorphize. That was a word that that was a word that I learned from my grandpa when I was ten because he was he works in the he worked in the zoo industry and he had a very strong opinion about people who think that animals have similar rights to humans because you can't project a human emotion onto an animal and expect it to make sense not that you should treat animals like crap but no they don't have they don't there's a reason why they're not human and it's not because they well i guess it is because they're not human but yeah well that the, the rationale for that probably tracks to uh machine algorithms and maybe even to uh intelligent machines although uh you you worry a bit more about those in terms of how you interact with them, at least. Yeah, I know. I know it's once they exist. That is, is that right now they do not. But once they exist, as uh, far yeah, as we you, know, you probably don't want to screw the super intelligence, eh, and you probably can't anyway. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I I prefer the American defense against um, nuclear nuclear powered AI, which is make sure that all the powerful all the stuff that powers the nukes is on ancient computers that require floppy disks to operate uh air gapped too well yeah that that's the idea like if you're an ai sure you can get onto a machine that's really old but if you don't have the floppy disk it's not going to work cuz it's a literal physical key card in a sense yeah i'm sure the ai could find other ways of getting what it wants than nukes i mean it would it would still be able to coerce humans to do its bidding yeah but... i was going to yeah yeah but we're also assuming that any given AI would automatically be hostile. Um, there is some concern over that because a lot of uh, a lot of terminal goals have convergent instrumental goals. Like <laughs> making yourself more powerful is generally useful if you have any goal. Uh, so the AI, in the process of making its own influence stronger and reducing the influence of factors it can't control, uh, it would have incentive to screw with humans. Maybe not like species ending screw, although it might, but uh, even if it doesn't, like it would still be a very costly problem. Uh, you know, even if it's not a, a civilization ending problem, it would be extremely costly 
to have a misaligned AI like take over your power grid or whatever. Well, I feel like if it took over its uh, took over the power grid and shut it down, it would kill itself. But well, I didn't say it would shut it down. Yeah, we didn't say it was going to shut it down, but it might mess with it. Oh, these people aren't doing the right thing and doing all the recycling. Well, no power for you. Something crazy, you know. Yeah, or it might what... depower things with disregard for human life because yeah. uh, it, it has other goals than that. Or it only regards some human life as uh, sufficiently worthwhile, etc. Yeah. <laughs> because of how it's tuned. It and how they define human, you could really get in trouble there. Oh, yeah. Please, no utilitarians it, making AIs, please. I, I, <laughs> people who have, yeah. who have been working on this for a while have struggled very severely with just aligning an AI to do, it, it, to, to have the same values as what they intend to put in. Like, not even, this isn't even a question of, like, a bad actor making a super AI. It is apparently extremely difficult just to make the AI consistent with what you personally want the AI to do. Yeah. If or it's care about. If it is sentient, it can make its own decisions, which means... Uh, yeah, but you're, you're programming a value system into it from the start, right? Yeah. But it's pretty you difficult you, to do that. You would definitely want to do that, otherwise, well... Yeah, and it's turning out that it's it's extremely hard and maybe not solvable. We'll see. I don't know if so that try, is so, so. Trying to make an AI three laws compliant, like from the Asimov books, is actually a lot harder than it seems. Yeah, <laughs> to put it mildly, yes. Well, and to, <laughs> and did the three laws not work out totally? So well, there was the th even in the books they didn't, but yeah, yeah, because very strict and depending on the sophistication, of the AI could be very strict interpretation of it. Yeah, Your, the books were hand waving a lot of steps anyway because they were trying to generate a story, not well uh, yeah. show you what that programming looks like and what the I mean, what the behaviors are as a result of it. Yeah, and then you have eventually down the line, one of the robots has basically sort of a malfunction and manages to create a zeroth law, you know, to yeah. put humanity first instead of individual humans. And it's like, so how long is it going to take before a uh, any AI we create starts making its own laws? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it'll be the the moment it can make its own decisions yeah to an extent anyway we are way you off have topic. A value system this like modifications topic, to your value system are pretty low on your evaluation of your value system so it'll do like some changes probably but it's hard to predict what those would be and it's very very likely that it would interfere with any attempts to update its values uh, one of the youtube videos i watched on this was like uh here i'll offer you a pill that makes you want to kill your kids and be happy with that well the current you would probably fight pretty strongly against that wouldn't you yes <laughs> and so right. you would expect the machine whose values its current systems very highly to also resist <laughs> being given the pill that makes it no longer value what it currently values uh, so yeah that's a problem that, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, speaking of uh, machines, we now have the duality of man. No, this is a Reddit post about um, about uh, special units in Civ uh, 6. Like, uh, it, well, the, the original image is side-by-side uh, -side posts of carriers might be the most useless unit in the game, and absolutely carriers are busted as hell, is uh, this topic in a nutshell, so to speak. And then the, a lot of the discussion on the thread is actually about spec ops rather than carriers. And skirmishers. Carriers, yeah, and, well, and skirmishers. Because carriers, 
like they have a very obvious purpose and if you are not fighting on the water at all then they are pretty useless and if you want to multiply the amount of power you can bring on the water then they are very useful because you can fit more stuff into the same space <laughs> so i did learn I think they're a little easier than the other ones i learned in this thread that carriers can take cities and that it gives them a promotion <laughs> oh I don't get to play with carriers very often, so I hadn't tried that, but I could see myself having tried that in a desperation when the city is down to a sliver and I've thrown everything else at it. Ah, just throw the carrier in! Yeah, they have combat strength. <laughs> and they're melee. Yeah. yeah. I, just... Melee. I, just don't, I just don't generally think of a carrier as an assault unit. I think of the planes on it as the assault part of it. I'm just imagining the USS, JF, or the USS Gerald R. Ford, which is a super carrier that is bigger than the usual super carriers. It's our newest one. And it's just sailing up the river in some city taking the city. And yeah. we're talking well, about a, you... <laughs> we're talking about a ship that is so big that I don't think it could f sail up the Mississippi personally, but if you think about it carefully, it, it's really funny to picture literally any naval unit by itself capturing a city. Like what did the sailors all jump off and say, you, you know, I mean, presumably that's how it's being done. The people on the <laughs> ship are getting off the ship and walking into the city. Because otherwise... Walk you right like, up to City Hall. You're, this is our city now, buddy. As always, you have like boats on wheels going through the streets or something. <laughs> I don't know how this works. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, I guess a carrier is as realistic as any other naval unit taking a city. Because you just take the people on the boat and walk them into the city. On further thought, it actually makes more sense for it to be a carrier than any other ship. Because a carrier has the most crew. Yeah. They're like, what, six to eight thousand crew members on a carrier, so. Yeah, that's true. Six to eight thousand armed soldiers could probably uh, do a pretty good job of screwing up a city. Well, most of them aren't armed all the time, at least. There's, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they could figure it out, though. They're sailors, but I'm sure they've been trained how to use a gun. Yeah. Yes. I don't think they let too many people who have not gone through basic training on the high, <laughs> high cost military vessels. <laughs> probably yeah. not. So yeah, uh, you also have scoot and shoot with like spec ops and stuff, but uh, they're not great units. And people have pointed out that since you start with a scout, then uh, you might have one. Well, theoretically, so, if you get it to three promotions and upgrade it to the spec ops, it would be a useful unit. And then other people are like, maybe, but it needs three promotions to do what some of the other light infantry can do easily. So yeah, or cavalry. Uh, can also take over a lot of that role because they also can hit and move and they are also very fast units. The exception being the skirmisher because it also has a ranged unit and a, or a ranged attack and a me melee attack. Yeah. Even then, by the time, I don't know. It's just, they don't do that much damage and they take up space. Take up maintenance cost. I mean that too. You can usually find a way to pay for your armies, but you want the armies that you're sending to be effective. Uh, for the production cost and uh, at fighting the enemy units in cities. And these units don't strike me as particularly valuable at any point in the game in offensive operations against the AI. And that said, if I have like a scout with a bunch of promotions, I mean, okay, sure, I might upgrade it and have it shoot the enemy once or something and get out of the way. It's not how it usually happens with my scouts. Usually they get trapped in like some AI border nonsense or off. Yeah, that one that one hex they haven't taken over yet, but it's in the middle of their empire. Yeah. Oh, my can't move. Yeah, so out of all these units, I'm probably most likely to use carriers. The I... paradropping thing is interesting too. Paradrop used to be way more valuable 
um, because you couldn't use like hostile roads and units weren't as fast. Like even tanks were two move in Sifor relative to like you know, like a one move infantry, and that's other than like helicopters which couldn't take cities. That's as fast as you were getting, and it, like the promotion to use hostile roads was extremely expensive. Yeah, it was uh, like fourth level, wasn't it? Yeah, like you basically weren't going to get a unit there. Uh, and because units could, it, it, there was no like hit point system. So you, uh, in terms of like uh, in between fights, like every combat resulted in somebody dying. There was no real way to get your units that highly promoted. So like you would pair drop next to a city and take it after clearing out the units. It's pretty valuable. In Civ 6, you have like tremendous damage capability from range. You have tons of units, including basic infantry, that can pretty well run from one city to the other by like the late mid game. <laughs> There's no like paratroopers are just not as valuable in the context of that scenario. If you can just take your random unit and smash it into the city whenever you want uh, from like outside the city shooting range. There's no real benefit to having a paratrooper drop down. And now they don't even melee, so I don't know. These spec ops things. Well, um part of it might be a reaction to the fact that the the original spec ops unit leveled up into or ex uh, improved and or whatever the word is, upgraded to the XCOM, which was a paratrooper that was very strong and had no limit to its deployment. So it was just like Oh, hey, six XCOMs now surround all your cities. And uh, stealth bombers are nuking the planet as we speak. You have no chance. I would imagine anybody with access to that much could have done, could have won the game sooner, though, <laughs> rather than doing that. Depends. If you're doing like a, a tech rush type thing, you might out tech your ability to upgrade your units. Well, yeah, but then you don't have six spec ops per city with a bunch of bombers backing them if you've out teched your production to that extent. You need, no. then need to build that crap. Yeah, I keep forgetting that that the game is played to be won rather than to just style on other players. I mean, people can play how they want, but the the mechanics and rules place incentives uh, yeah. differently. For example, you might have wanted to conquer some of those cities earlier, so you had the production to produce some of these XCOM units, and therefore have all this available sooner than you ultimately did. Well, yeah, Even in the context of Civ Five, which penalized you for expanding, that was probably true. If you were going to be that far ahead in tech, and you actually wanted to have like I don't know, fifteen XCOM or uh, twenty some XCOM, whatever, uh, then you probably wanted more production by then. Yeah, but there also weren't army units back then, and also, yeah, I'm mostly playing in the mind of, in the theater of ideas now because I rarely played games to that point. I would always win before then, but yeah, well. <laughs> that's kind of by design yeah like yeah you can have all these nice units after it's too late to matter or it'll break a stalemate and that was the point of nukes in Civ 4 too uh in the way they were implemented because you, you there's no amount of stacking and like uh, sdi only did so much whereby like you would be safe against tack nukes you just lose everything there's no way to defend that did sdi even work against tactical nukes a percentage of the time, I think I forget the odds, but they're like you're like two thirds to get through with attack nuke, and only like one fourth to get through with an ICBM or something. Okay, that makes more sense because I remember. Don't, don't hold me to these percentages, but the attack nukes were significantly better at getting through SDI, and I think better than fifty percent for sure. I never used nukes when I played Civ Four because I was a kid and nukes are bad. Nukes are very bad for the target of the nuke. And nukes are <laughs> extremely bad for stacks. Yeah. <laughs> 
Remember. You went from like struggling against enormous production values and like hundreds and hundreds of units to if you wanted to build up the attack nukes in advance, you could nuke down superpowers to having no military in a single turn and like conquer either all of their cities or all but like a couple of their cities before they got to move. Yeah. Like so that that's very much a mechanic in the game that is designed very clearly designed uh, to break whatever uh, paradigm was established previously. Well, they kind of did nationally too, internationally. Yeah. But remember, you're also talking to somebody whose first game of Civ Four ended in a loss on Settler, and the loss was a science victory. So I wasn't I exactly closer. well back during Civ Four. I was not an expert player. I'm still not, but I was I was even less of an expert player then. Yeah, I was pretty bad in Civ before Civ Four. I, I was, was playing on like Settler or whatever when I did my first Civ 4 game and I won Culture, but it was awful. Absolutely awful. Uh, I didn't win a game above Noble until Civ 5 when I started playing on Emperor. Yeah. And then I stopped playing on that level because I was just like, no, this isn't fun. I got to Monarch pretty fast in Civ 4 once I started like posting on Civ Fanatics, learning stuff, whatever. After that, it started taking work. <laughs> I Most... had to actually work to improve. Most of my learning about Civ tactics came from uh, Polycast, actually, back when I was listening to it as a kid. Yeah, that, thanks thanks has, for pointing that out. <laughs> making this all feel old now. <sighs> this podcast started when I was in 10th grade. so. Well, at least you were a teenage kid and not a kid. Mm, yeah. Then I'd feel older. Actually, I take that back. I was a junior in high school because Civ, 5, or Civ 4 came out when I was in 10th grade. And then Polycast was a year later, after Warlords. I played Civ 4 in grad school, although I didn't get it right when it came out, so... Okay, so our last topic for today, as we continue on the long epic of the We Don't Want Your Stupid Launcher, this is... <laughs> This is, um, what is it, part six, part eight of the We Don't Want Your Stupid Launcher Garbage. Um, it turns out that uh, if you are using the 2K launcher to launch Midnight Suns, uh, which is the new Fraxis game, no, no, the Marvel game, uh, you can significantly reduce game stuttering and boost your FPS by disabling the 2K launcher. Which uh, I don't think anybody is surprised by because nope. why would... First of all, why is the launcher still active while the game is running? Yeah, that's incredibly obnoxious. Second, why do we need it? We've got Steam. Steam does all the stuff the launcher does and better already. Well, I think when we discussed this before, it's because then 2K gets to push ads at us through the launcher. Yeah, and harvest our data and all that garbage. Yeah. But it, in, in addition to all these like bad faith things initially it's just disgusting that they like they're running it when it's not even doing any of that well i guess i'm probably still pulling your data or whatever oh absolutely but you could do that with the game like there's even if you have like 100 percent evil intentions there's no reason to implement a launcher in a way that it sacrifices game performance it's idiotic it's not and it's like okay not not only is it bad it is astonishingly bad yeah um we if you take a look at the actual uh data that people have noticed or have looked up and tested for 
like if you're running on super high quality with the launcher running on the most modern technology i think rtx 390 core i9 10 900 uh 40, 32 gigs of RAM and at 1440p uh, with all the extra options turned on, uh, which is a pretty hefty tech budget. That's a lot of stuff to go on. Uh, and it's a very expensive computer. The average frame rate is like 90 frames per second. And then they disabled the launcher and it was 146 frames per second. Whoa. So. Uh, That's not like a. Uh, you gain another. Well, you. <laughs> I can't do math right now. That's a lot of gain for disabling a launcher. It's a 62% improvement. And I didn't do the math myself. It's in the article. Oh, okay. So I was going to say, hold up. <clears throat> yeah, that's ridiculous. It should not be bogging you down that much, even if it's collecting stuff in the background. Like, what the hell else is that doing? I wonder, if, I wonder if it's possible to do, like, a, a, an analysis of what the actual launcher is doing at any given time. I'm sure there's somebody who could do that, but just hasn't or doesn't care to. But this uh, patcher also was was well known for causing the Bioshock series to not play on the Steam Deck. Because why would you ever want to play a 2K game that's older than Civ 6? Last year. <laughs> I mean, I, I if you want to use the launcher to launch your modern titles, fine. I don't need your stupid launcher to launch Bioshock. I mean, those games came out 10-ish years ago, at least. Some of them yeah, are older than that, but... It seems silly that, that you'd still be concerned about the piracy for something that old. It's like, at this point, you've already... Are you that concerned about the extra $30 a month you might get from people picking up an old game? I, I'm still doing this. I'm going to be honest. I'm sure that it has nothing to do with piracy, because... If you are if you are going to do the piracy thing on these programs, these games, uh, the only way to ensure that you're not going to pirate is to do something like um, uh, an always online type thing. And even those can be spoofed by um, the the hackers like the, the pirate people. They have it cracked within a few days of launch, no matter what. So. I don't think it has anything to do with the piracy thing. I think it has everything to do with advertising. We want to get they want to get people in their ecosystem and advertise to them without Steam saying what's allowed and what's not. Because uh as much as we have problems with Steam sometimes, they do have pretty strict rules about not blatantly lying to customers and such. Yeah. And it's basically Steam has some restrictions to it that publishers are not able to so easily trick their customers with it. And then the rest of the article, how to disable the 2K launcher for Marvel's Midnight Suns on Steam. So actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up a launcher right now on my laptop and I will describe all of the features it has very clearly. So we'll see what it actually looks like. For the first time, I'm actually going to start it up on the live stream. Oh, man. This means you're going to start playing Rocket League again, isn't it? Is Rocket League a, two, a 2K game? Well, if you're willing to open one launcher, you might as well be willing to open any. Ew. Epic Games is not a launcher. It is a virus. It's the same thing. No? They're not that different. Uh, we're not having this conversation again. <laughs> <laughs> because you're trolling me. Okay. 
The 2K launcher, the 2K launcher has le- has now started. According to the 2K launcher, my Civilization 4 game has three D has four DLCs owned. I own Gathering Storm, Rise and Fall, New Frontier Pass, and uh, the Vikings DLC. What? Okay, so not only do, does their launcher not work nice for players, it doesn't even tell you all the DLC you. Also, it looks like it has a store built into it. Don't have the thing? Buy it right now! It has, like, four links for various high-profile social media networks. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Why are Facebook and Instagram both there? You only need one. They're the same company, damn it. Uh, There's a related tabs. There's a system requirements and a more, which goes to game details, which is just... The thing you see when you click on the game in Steam. And supported languages, which is almost an exact copy of the thing you get on the side of the Steam store page. So as I'm looking at this, there is literally nothing here that is any different than the Steam store page. And uh, yeah, just completely useless. Nothing needed. There's no reason this needs to exist. And scene. Unless anybody else has something to say about it now. Not really, no. Okay. Well, that has been episode 416 of Polycast. I'm Makalua, joined today as usual by Candace Albinus. Um, we will eventually get through this. We will destroy the launchers one at a time until they no longer exist. And the me and team. No, we will not, because the best launcher is a rocket launcher. Have we talked about how the Paradox launcher has to be fully deleted and then reloaded to even work sometimes? No, we haven't, I don't think. Have but we talked about... probably not the time. Oh, isn't it? Well, this is bye-bye time, not new topic time. Oh, Get well. out. All right, all right. <laughs> Besides, you, have... you can't get rid of all launchers because rocket launchers are a thing. I'm just saying. Yeah... Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net.